Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Hello, my name is Tom Herzog and I'm your host today. I serve as the Chief Operating Officer here at NetSmart and it is my privilege to introduce our guest today, Bob Sheehan. Bob is the Chief Executive Officer of the Community Mental Health Association of Michigan. The association represents the state's public community health providers and centers, public prepaid inpatient health plans, public health plans formed and governed by the CMHCs and the providers within the CMHCs and the PAIHP provider networks. Bob is also the current chair of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Disabilities Directors. Before being named Michigan's Association CEO in 2015, Bob served 18 years as the CEO of the Community Mental Health Authority of Clinton, Eaton, and Ingram Counties. During his tenure, this comprehensive mental health treatment services provider served over 11,000 persons annually in its three-county area. Bob was instrumental in the formation of a 21-county prepaid inpatient health plan that led to increased efficiency and uniformity of services while retaining a locally-driven system of care. I'm really excited about our conversation today. I've had many people share with me some of the talks and um, presentations uh, that Bob has given recently and said, you know what, we really need to connect on that. So here's what we thought we'd do. The topic of our episode today is understanding the focus on the delivery of behavioral health services in today's world, really focusing on five key elements impacting those efforts. We're in a time, I think all of us would agree, when disruption is challenging and creating more change than I know I've ever seen in my lifetime. It's impacting many foundational elements of the behavioral health care delivery system as we know it. And as we've all used the term, we're looking for what that new normal will be. There will be a new normal that comes. I don't think we're there yet. I think there's going to be some things that we're going to learn unlearn and relearn in that process. I think if you really look at the ecosystem today, we're constantly evolving in all aspects, clinically, operationally, financially. Politically and regulatory, we know that the influences are challenging us for what is true obstacles and what are the opportunities before us. So we're gonna dive into the topics And as Bob helps his members navigate within his own community and nationally, we just want an opportunity to learn and share what some of those top of mind thoughts are, best practices, maybe some of those things that we're not going to do anymore as we look forward. So let's get started. Key element number one, Bob. Bob, you ready? I should ask. I am, Tom. I am, Tom. And again, thanks for hosting this. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And I think this is... um, These five things that we have out there, I think, are the top of mind topics, and people are going to look forward to this discussion today. So key element number one, the growth of managed care and risk management. So in the past several years, behavioral health has seen a shift from fee-for-service to value-based payments based on the outcomes. No question, a game-changing byproduct of this emergence of managed care and risk management. So my first question to you is, how is this impacting the landscape for providers and those they serve? 
You know, it's a key key question, Tom, because it impacts our providers across the country financially and clinically. The biggest change for folks is to get used to a model that is not volume-based. You know, fee-for-services volume. And the more contacts I have with clients, to be blunt, whether they need it or not, the more revenue I, I bring in. And sometimes the revenues, by the way, the rates are so low per unit that you need to see a lot of units. As it moves to more of a, either a case rate or a capitation where it's more quality-based, population-based, which is capitation, or case client-based, clinicians receive greater flexibility. They can actually make a call. What does Jane or John need? Do they need five contacts or can they do with one? Or do they need 20? And allows them to make those, those adjustments. It also allows them to do things that aim at social determinants they may not have done before. So for example, if I'm an outpatient therapist and I'm getting paid for the session, we may be talking about homelessness or job loss or, or divorce, but I'm dealing with the psychotherapy right in the room. If I'm paid a case rate or capitation, I can now actually call their landlord. I can drive with them out to see the landlord, the employer, the, the spouse, the family, and work on the things that actually are impacting their mental health. So I urge folks in the fee-for-service world not, not to fear risk-based contracts. In fact, if they understand the volume of services they do now, and if they have a rough sense of the cost, I think we spend too much time making people panicky about you better know your costs. Well, actually, most providers know their costs. I mean, I tell people, it is simply, guys, your budget divided by your units. You use that. you got a good rule of thumb. So rather than making it into rocket science, just take your clinical knowledge, aim the services at what people need as opposed to what the volume used to drive in revenues and adjust to a risk-based environment. And I think the risk is no greater than it is in a fee-for-service environment. Getting people to know that is, is key, I think. Yeah, I think you hit on the key topic. I know in the conversations I've had, it's the cost and what is it going, is it going to drastically going to impact our, our organization in a way that we can't provide those services? And I guess I'd ask you that is, I think this is a learning time. And I know I've seen a willingness to adjust and edit those things. And I'm curious, are you seeing that as well? Or is it just set in stone and no one's going to move off of that? No, I'm glad you said it. So in Michigan, we provide almost a perfect laboratory in the public system. The public CMHs, the community mental health centers, went to capitation in 97, so 20, you know, five years ago. But parallel to that, we still had a fee-for-service system that those CMHs, if they are purchasers, in Michigan, the CMHs are purchasers and, and providers, they're purchasing on a fee-for-service basis. So we could actually study the, the two side by side. Those CMHs made the conversion in 97 pretty seamlessly. Right. They really got it. They embraced it because, and the major driver was, it gave them greater clinical flexibility. So um, make up a number. If I'm getting $1,000 a month for a certain case as a case rate, I can use that $1,000 in all kinds of ways, ways that wouldn't be typically billable under a fee-for-service system. And that's when clinicians realized that they had the ability to improve quality of life, to improve recovery, sobriety if it's substance abuse, or full functioning if it's IDD, without having to worry about, do I have to get every widget accounted for? And it has to be in some clinical setting. So I think that once people saw it that way, Tom, they were liberated. And I think yeah. that's how people need to really embrace it. So I would urge providers actually to push their payers to move yeah. into a case rate or subcapitation rate system. 
Well, I think that's a great suggestion because I know it's that apprehension or fear and your encouragement is, hey, press in and really begin helping shape the system to work best for those we serve in your organization and have those conversations. And I would tell you, I've seen the same thing. I've seen more collaboration on those things versus kind of the binary aspect that everyone was concerned about. And we all know the concerns that people have (laughs) when you go to an outcome based model and how can we each evolve and learn together on it. So I guess last follow-up on this is what do you see as the next fundamental shift uh, on the horizon on this topic? Well, I think we're seeing more and more uh, states in the Medicaid side and commercial insurers are pushing risk down to their providers, either providers as a group or as individuals. And I think providers, I mean, that's where we're heading. Now, it's going slow, I should tell you. On the Medicaid side it's and on the commercial side, States that didn't do it during our era, late 90s, early 2000s, there's some resistance we're seeing, to be somewhat frank. Not only providers are used to fee-for-service, but payers are, are too. And so a lot of payers say, I don't want to shift the risk. I want to hold the risk here because, to be somewhat blunt, payers then also keep the savings, right? Yeah. Whereas if you push the risk down, the provider then is incentivized to do things more efficiently because he or she can, if they're a public body, reinvest those savings into services. If they're a private body, they can, if they choose, take them out in terms of profits. And I think that's where I must tell you that more and more I'm finding payers are more resistant than providers are. Providers have gotten their heads around alternative payment methods, the APMs, but some payers, and I'm not being critical of them, I understand they've under, they've had this model since the 50s, but changing from a fee-for-service to a more risk-based capitation or case rate is a uh, a big mindset change, but it, you know, I, I, you can just see it happening more and more. Yeah, it's a big shift for all people involved, and I think we're going to edit and evolve through it. And I echo and agree everything you're saying. Well, let's move on to the next topic, and and really, this one is going to be around the ad- adequate funding. And so, we've seen COVID nineteen relief um, le- legislation has infused billions of dollars in grants and under and other funding for behavioral health providers. How do you frame this recent funding in the context of the long time lack of funding that health providers have, that behavioral health providers have been challenged with? So the last part of your question is the key. You're talking about 30 or 40 years of underfunding. And I would say, I would say, by the way, that's true on the public side and the private side. So on the public side, Medicaid and state journal fund dollars that fund service to the poor, that's always been a skinnying down. If you made a political hierarchy map, right? People with mental health conditions are towards the bottom of that. Only recently has their political power begun to be exercised. And so because of that, and because, to be blunt, some people don't, still don't get the fact that mental health conditions are real. I mean, you'll, you'll hear, in fact, you'll actually see Medicaid budgets go up for physical health care, but you won't see that from behavioral health care. So I think we're starting to beat the drum. A lot of people are to say, you've got to close the gap. In fact, COVID's making that happen. A lot of the money that's coming down to states and counties is our mental health dollars. One of the concerns on the public side, I should say, is most of the money is relief money or stimulus money, so it's short-lived. And yet the problems we're talking about are not short-lived. I, I, I understand the rationale behind it to say there's this acute set of anxieties and depressions happening throughout the country because of COVID, but a lot of those were embedded already in our system. I mean, anxiety and depression, psychosis, substance use disorders, family dissolution, academic failure. We're all we're all there, all of which you have their roots in mental health issues. So we're doing a lot of work to urge federal and state funders to recognize those new added dollars will give them, hopefully, we think, a new normal 
not a short-lived shot in the arm. If I could, well, Tom, can I talk about the private side a bit, if you don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to hit on that here coming up, but please do. Yes. So on, on the private side, there's been an underfunding, too. I mean, most people who have commercial insurance, either they purchase it on the exchange or they get it from their employer, don't pay attention to the behavioral health care um, benefit until they need it. And then they realize most of those benefits cover what I call A and Z, not A through Z, A and Z, meaning A, outpatient psychotherapy or primary care providers giving psychotropic mental health medications or the other end, inpatient care. But over the last 40 years, the public system has built all kinds of interventions in between that, from residential to drop-in centers to peer supports to home-based care to employment supports and housing supports. I mean, the whole range of services, but rarely are those services covered on the private side. And so what you have is a behavioral health care benefit that's thinly funded by private insurance, and that means by employers many times, that needs to be broadened. And a lot of people, you know this, on the commercial side, end up in the hospital or end up dropping out of work or dropping out of school because those intermediate modalities, which are proven, they've been around for decades, aren't being used by the commercial side. So I would I would applaud any insurers who are willing to rethink their behavioral health care benefit. That often comes from employers and payers, by the way. You know, the customer says, I think I need this yeah. act, this act team thing or this drop-in team thing that I saw my Medicaid neighbor have. How come I can't get that? Well, and I think, you know, you hit on, and I can speak at it from an employer standpoint, it's the number one thing that we're focused on every year is the evolution of that. And, you know, I think the goodness is, as I look out in the broader community, we're now having these conversations that we just didn't have five years ago. So the campaigns around awareness and defeating stigma have worked, but now we've kind of moved into the next magnitude or the next challenge. And it's really twofold there on the funding piece that you hit on that I'm worried about. And one, you just hit on the private side and how do we um, who are providing benefits continue to adapt and align that we know provide proven treatments towards outcomes that are incredibly desired, that are not just a medical model or physical model of care, and have that become part of the natural evolution around these things. But then the other one you hit on, I think the biggest thing I'm worried about the funding is the surge is nice, but it was really addressed a gap that was already there before the pandemic, if we're candid about it. And yes, we were able to address some things across our communities, but when that goes away, I hope we were ready to edit and evolve because that gap's going to be there again, unless we've done something different. You hit the nail on the head, Tom. In fact, the metaphor for me is the infrastructure bill, right? I mean, we've ignored our bridges and roads and water systems for 50 years. And now we're injecting trillions of dollars into to solve that. And those will be spent over the next 20 years. But we yeah. need to take, take the same view. Mental health care is part of the infrastructure. I mean, it really is. And we've ignored it for, for this long. We know that we thrive as families, as employees, as students, when we have strong mental health. And so we need to make sure that the infrastructure is there. Well, Bob, I just got, uh, I've been on a mental health task force committee here locally in our community because there was a desire to rethink how we as a community, if if the notion is to have a healthy and thriving community, it doesn't just happen through fancy campaign slogans. There's got to be intentionality in there, both in the services that are offered, how we offer them, how we connect, even going down to co-responders and how we engage when there's a time of crisis. So on the positive, I'm seeing it happen. Your connection to the infrastructure piece 
I think there's a bigger conversation that we have to have as a society, and that is how are we going to fund these things if we want the outcomes around healthy and thriving communities, which is obvious. Exactly right. Exactly. Let's move on to, I think you and I could talk a long time about that one. So I'm going to move on to the next one, which is around integration with primary care. So, and we hit on a little bit around modalities are expanding, opportunities for providers are are expanding or they're being asked to expand. So another key element impacting the delivery of, of our of behavioral health care services is the focus on whole person care, integrated care. We, there, there's a lot of different uh, words or bu- buzzwords that we use around that, but essentially addressing a person's mental health, substance abuse issues or potential substance abuse issues, also throw social determinants of health within that mix and physical health needs. Now, you and I have grown up in a medical model, physical mm-hmm. model, these others are there now. So I gotta know, what are your views on the integration with primary care? What works? what doesn't work, and what needs improvement? Great question. It's really fundamental to our evolving healthcare systems. I always start with the premise of we have to define integration from the client or patient's perspective first, really, because it's he or she who's saying, if my care was integrated, it would look like X. Now, it turns out it's very different for people. But here's what it doesn't mean. And this is where we have a debate going on across the country. It doesn't mean there's a single payer. Meaning, and I I hear people say that if my insurance company was paying for physical and behavioral, man, would it be integrated? And I ask most people who have commercial uh, coverage, is that what you see in your own world? Really? Are you finding your behavioral health care provider is talking to your primary care provider or your primary care adjunct specialist? No. And yet you have a single payer. So the reason I say that is it's on the ground. That's a term we use, on the ground, where the patient or client is served. And some of the models that work really well, and again, this is driven by the client or patient, co-location models work great. Now, some people think co-location is not sufficient. However, if my therapist is down the hall from my primary care doc, my chance of walking down the hall upon referral is a lot greater yeah. And if my doc just says, here's a phone number. In fact, I don't know if you've seen some of the data. The take-up rate, if my primary care doc says, you seem depressed to me, Bob, Here's a phone number. Why don't you call the outpatient clinic? The yeah. take-up rate for that is almost zero. I mean, most yeah. people, they lose the, the thing or they forget about it or that anxiety they felt was relieved a little bit by having a phone number. They don't follow up on it or they're embarrassed by it. Yeah. If I can just walk down the hall of my primary care provider and get it, under the guise of primary care, I'm not worried about, about stigma. Yeah. It's true the other way, too. Co-locating primary care providers in mental health settings that are meant for people with serious mental health conditions. So, for, for example, if I have schizophrenia, actually my health home is my mental health provider. Yeah. Or, or if I have Down syndrome, my health home is that provider. I might want my primary care provider there so I can see them there. I don't want to have to go to a primary care site. Now, I shouldn't. that's not true for everyone. For some people, integration just means please share clinical records. So that's another model that we use a lot. So yeah. I don't really want you in the same building. In fact, my primary care provider, I want to be able to change that one or my mental health one, and I don't want to have to lose that that link. So please link your clinical records. The third one we see a lot is high utilizers. So there are some people in our community who use a lot of mental health care, a lot of physical health care, ambulance runs, ERs. Yeah. You find with a model called complex care management, if some adult comes alongside me and says, hey, Bob, I see you go into the ER a lot. What's going on? And you know, the old story is sometimes the person says, well, I'm lonely or I'm cold or I could use a yeah. meal. Well, those are social determinants that can be solved very easily without an expensive ER run. Or the person might say, I keep losing my, my medications. And so we, we realize, I got to make sure I get you your mental health meds every day. I'm going to drop them off or every week or every month. Yeah. So it's that kind of 
When I say integration, it's what the client or patient needs specifically. And those three models, the ones we see most often, co-location, EMR, EHR link, and or um, high utilizers. And even high utilizers are driven by data, right? People right. need to know where are the high number of encounters and the cost of encounters happen. Well, I mean, I've seen all models now and we, in my vocational role, I, I serve all models and I think you hit, you know, the one that I've seen works well is the more we can make that immediate connection, the better. And for the, for the clinician and the care providers, that contextual relevance is critical. And it can't be, how do I go get this other information? And the more we can quite candidly untether people from technology and really use technology to empower them so that whether you're a uh, working on physical health, you have that contextual relevance around the social determinants or the behavioral health or on the opposite, that if you're a purely focused on placement on a vocational role or addressing homelessness, that you have that other context available too. So I think the goodness is those things are happening. Now you're seeing everyone get innovative around the models. Yes. In your point around where you're seeing that partnership or collaboration, I think you don't always have to solve it within your own organization. You can go work with someone and just edit and evolve from there. And biggest challenge, I get asked, you know, hey, what, what are your thoughts or what do you see in the communities you serve? I say start with something and mm -hmm. edit there. It won't be perfect. There's going to be some things that work really well. And there's going to be some things, you know what, we know what not to do now. And I think it will evolve in a big way. So Boy, Tom, I'm glad you said that because it's, it's an interesting thing. When this movement started about 15 years ago, there was this insistence on perfection, right? Unless you're yeah. using the high-end SAMHSA model, you aren't doing it. And I, so people stayed away from it. They said, I can't afford it or I can't yep. find a partner. I agree with you, at least cozy up to it. In fact, it's pretty organic, right? Once it starts, the relationships get better. I want to echo something else that you said. I know this is maybe longer than we had hoped, but oh, this is you, this is perfect. It's good. It's good. <laughs> your your point's a good one in that you don't have to invent it. For example, I I'm a big believer in best in breed. So if I'm yeah. a really good provider of schizophrenia recovery services, I don't have to open my own behavioral primary care clinic. There's one down the street, or there's an FQAC down the street. I can partner with them, and they say I don't need to now open a service that's really great at treating people with schizophrenia. I can actually yeah. partner with Bob, who's that therapist. So I'm seeing more of those woven together, what we used to call braided funding. It's braided clinical yeah. work. You braid that clinical work. And then the client, the patient is getting the best of both specialties. Well, I, that may be a follow-up discussion we need to have because I, I think people are interested in those models, but there's not necessarily a playbook on how to go make them work. I agree. Um, and there's also some lessons learned that we've shared. And I think when you're each trying to be each other, those models almost never work. But if you appreciate the each, the what you bring to the table and you can complement, man, some amazing things can happen. It's stunning, in fact, because then you're also both keeping up on your own field's latest, you know, and that doesn't happen when someone tries to be an omnibus provider. I've just seen it. They become yep. really good at one thing and they're using something that's 50 years old and the other. And then our clients and patients deserve better than that. I 100% agree. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to, you talked about private and public. So our next topic is the role of public and private sector in the service delivery. Um, you know, you've been a leader and an advocate for public health services in Michigan and nationwide. What are your thoughts? If you can expand a little more on this, in regards to how public and providers can work together to achieve the best synergy. You, you touched on a little bit on it, a couple questions before, but this is such 
I hear concern out there. You know, you, you you're seeing investment come in from the investment firms and and the people who've been serving this in a nonprofit way. Or what does that mean to me, and where does that go? Let's hit on this one because I'd love for you to share your thoughts on, you know, my belief is less fear and how can we play offense together in this area better? We we agree completely. So I have sort of a territory map in my head, if you don't mind, and I don't mean a geographic one, I mean a public and private responsibility one. On the private side, what, what I would say where the private sector is um, has an obligation, also is really good, is in the commercial insurance market, either exchange or when the, um, the employer is paying it. Secondly, there's a lot of great private providers. And so I think those two things are really good. And the private providers, by the way, can play in the private market and the public one. So just keep that in mind, if, if you don't mind. The private providers can play in both. The private payers can play, and I would prefer when I look across the country, where they work best is in the commercial market. Where the public side plays is in the public payer for the Medicaid benefit, or what I call the public patient, You know, people without any insurance or with Medicaid. And this doesn't always go well, but I've, I've seen in states where they've given that payer role to a private sector firm, it looks a lot like a commercial benefit. And in the commercial benefit, people forget, insurance model is, right, I, I want to make sure I can withhold enough money from service delivery to pay a profit. Well, that's not what happens in the public payer world. The public payer world, I'm going to send all the money out only keeping enough to have enough reserves to cover risk. There's no profit to be taken out. In fact, the salaries even, the public sector right. payers are far less than the private sector. So their admin rate is lower. And I think that's true on the, on the what I call the organizer end. So all the providers on the ground don't have to be public providers. And again, as I said, some of our best partnerships are public providers and, and private ones partnering up. But there's an organizer role in every community, what I call a safety net organizer role that says, if you're a Medicaid enrollee, or if you're a, a person in poverty without health insurance, you should be able to rely on a public utility-like body who organizes that care, whether it's a private sector provider pool or a, a public one. And that's a role that can't be played by the private as well, because they're, they don't have the same legal obligations or moral ones. I'm not faulting them. They're, they have a market-driven one, and that's appropriate. But it's not appropriate talking to the most vulnerable and the most, or some of our poorest members in our community. They need to be served by that public sector who has no dog in the fight of related to, to profit. They have a dog in the fight related to quality and coverage. So, so I think that that's how it can play. And some of the best partnerships, some we're trying to build across the country, bring a private sector health insurance company who understands physical health management really well to it with a behavioral health care firm. And they form a joint venture where they share in the savings and the risk. But what the behavioral healthcare side brings to the table is this, what you mentioned, the social determinant focus, this whole person focus, and what the health plan and its primary care network brings to the table is how does physical health work? And I think those are the ones that we're going to be seeing more and more of. So in your map, is it fair to say there's enough room for both entities to exist? And while there's some similarities in the missions, there are some differences within the missions that I think, you know, and there'll be some overlap. I don't think there's any question about that. Exactly. Uh, that I think there, there'll be an evolution that comes from that. And, I, and I'm going to be transparent. One of the things I know uh, my non, non, nonprofit friends are worried about is, great, they'll take the things that work really well and they'll leave us with the things that don't, continuing to squeeze and um, burden us. How would you answer that? Because that's probably the number one thing that I hear from yeah. people. Well, yeah, and so there's a metaphor for it. And I'm not sure everyone wants to hear this, but the metaphor is... And one time you had a single thing called the postal service, right? The post office. And it was your only 
package and letter carrier. It, and it yeah. carried it to everybody from people who, you know, and it was like eight or nine or nine cents. It was always below the actual cost. I'm not sure that was appropriate, by the way. But then you had FedEx and UPS come in and say, we can actually take that market. Of course, yeah. what they're taking is the most lucrative market. They don't serve every little borough and, and burg across the country. That's left to the, the Postal Service. And yet people say, the Postal Service is going broke. Yeah, because you you creamed, right? You you cherry picked. Right. And, that's, and that works. And I have no problem with that. The partnership would have worked and could work if we as a public then said, well, what would it take then to, to fund that safety net public postal service. Let's fund yeah. it, right? So it may be, and it might not be all stamp driven, by the way. I may pay the postage, I'll make up a number of a buck and a half to send a package, yeah. but it turns out the feds are paying the other buck and a half because it costs three bucks. And yeah. the reason I say that is that isn't mismanagement by the postal service. That's all the good clients or customers and markets yeah. were taken away by the private sector. So I have nothing wrong with that if we admit that to say, we don't mind that. That's a good yeah. partnership. However, then we as public need to fund the safety net role. And the Postal Service serves as the same safety net that I think the public mental health system serves. And in ours, it might be crisis services, or as you said, mobile teams going out with the police. Those are yeah. all public goods the public expects. And so let's fund them because those aren't lucrative. You know, no one will get into that in the private market, but it's right. a public good that people expect. Well, and you're segueing into my next um, question and the last one here, and this has been great. And you've got my mind spinning on a bunch of different subtopics I would love to get into. And I, you know, I, I agree with you. And that is, and I, and the way I say it is, we're funding those things, whether we want to be candid about it or not. They're just not always in the most optimal way, whether it's in an optimal outcome in regards to how we may engage in a crisis in the community or around the efficiency. So I believe, you know, that the, we got to have that conversation as a society that the safety net is essential to our quality of life, to the opportunity, accessibility, affordability. And we need to be very pragmatic around those things and help people who have raised their hand and stepped into these roles that are very essential to our life and give them the resources, tools, and funding to do the amazing things. And that's really the segue on, on the last one that I have here, which is changing community expectations. So we know that the engagement you and I have just talked about in mental health and substance abuse issues continues to increase. And I think that's through a lot of the efforts we're seeing that happen. You know, mental health first aid is a good example. That wasn't even a word many years ago. And now it's a phrase that people understand that how we connect and, and help a person in need is different than, than a person in, in a physical crisis. This is driving the expectations and the opportunities for expanded services, as you just talked about, such as mental health programs, not just in the traditional setting, but also in schools, in creative programs, law enforcement, in our justice system. So I would ask you, how does this impact your members and other providers around the country? You know, I think that you and I had talked about some of the threats and discouragements in our system, but this is one of hope. I think more and more people expect to get access to mental health care. In fact, they're more and more expecting to talk about it. I mean, I've been stunned in the last 20 years, people wouldn't have mentioned depression or antidepressants ever right. in, in, in a session, or if they were joking about it, right? Now people talk about it because it's real. And I, I, I've been impressed that how often people talk about depression and anxiety and some use disorders and, and recovery, as if they're talking about getting over physical health, health conditions. So I think it's really encouraging. I think because of that though, they're expecting us to perform, right? They want the system then to, could you help, help me recover? 
you know, and uh, and it's a little bit different than physical healthcare. People kind of forget that with physical healthcare, you could often get a shot or get a bone set, right? And even if even if you're a non-compliant patient, now that's not true for everything, but even if you're a non-compliant patient, your code will go away if you just take the medicine. But with mental health care, you have to also do something almost beyond that. So if I'm taking medication for antidepressant, they might also say, you know, it'd be good if you exercise, Bob, or if you hung out with friends, or if you got a religious life, or if you ate better or slept better. So I have to sort of take on a whole prison orientation myself. I think people are getting that. They're saying, I, I'm willing to do that. So I think that's key. You mentioned a couple other expectations, and that's why we've seen the really the huge growth in what are called treatment courts, right? Yeah. Substance abuse courts, mental health courts, domestic violence yeah. courts. People are saying we shouldn't just be locking people up because almost always we remind people that person's life gets a whole lot worse. And by the way, sometimes there are family members or victims' lives who get worse. And so we're not only paying an economic price, but a social price, sometimes a physical price. So I think people are saying, well, let's intervene early. Let's, in lieu of being arrested, let's have crisis teams be out with law enforcement. Let's train law enforcement officers. Let's train EMTs on mental health conditions. Let's train teachers. Across the country, including Michigan, there's been a lot of support across the aisle, ours and the D's, putting money into school-based mental health. They're realizing if we can yeah. do that in a non-stigmatized setting, that kid's academic performance can go through the ceiling again, or maybe for the first time, because we're addressing his or her mental health needs or substance abuse or their parents. So I think the expectations are high. And my last one, Tom, is people do want crisis support. I always joke that no one knows about the crisis system for mental health till they need it, and it takes them days to find it. By the yeah. time they get it, it's not funded sufficiently. So I've said people expect that, whether they know it or not. And if they could, if we could help people understand there are tax dollars needed to support yeah. a ubiquitous crisis system that's available 24-7 whenever you need it, I think everyone's lives would run a whole lot smoother because a little bit of crisis intervention early on solves a problem that can't be solved in an ER or in a police station. Well, and I think you, you know, you as you began, there's opportunities here for providers out there, and that because there's new open mindset to um, venues of care, types of care that didn't exist even just a few years ago, and so I think that creates an opportunity not only to expand modalities, but services and where you offer those services, and yeah, while you're existing, kind of how how things were were operating for you will have changed. I do believe, and I tend to be an optimist, that mm -hmm. new ones are opening up that can that can augment any uh, change within those organizations. That's exactly right, Tom. In fact, the big one we saw over the last two years is telehealth. We've formed a telehealth resource center here to push it, and holy smokes, folks have really gotten it. Not only audio video, but audio only. We've had a yeah. lot of folks who've said, I like talking to my therapist on the phone or my psychiatrist. Actually, I don't want them seeing inside my house, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Some people do better with audio and video, some do face-to-face. -face. And so it's two more tools in the clinician's toolbox, right? I can talk to you on the phone and more and more payers are paying for it. Now we're hoping they'll continue beyond the pandemic because actually yeah. we just we just finished a research project that showed providers and, and clients like it a lot when it's used yeah. as one tool, not the only tool, that audio and audio plus video are a nice adjunct to face-to-face. Well, Bob, I'm going to bring us in for a landing here, and I want to first just thank you for the conversation today. I'm going to ask you a question just for a, a word or a statement or a thought and a time when people have dealt with more challenge, more headwinds, more adversity, more uncertainty than ever. I'd love for you to just give your encouragement 
what would the, the optimism as you spoke about that we need to be focused on as we navigate forward in this closing minute? So I think I would give four words. Sorry, Tom, I couldn't do it to one. That's fine. <laughs> one is community that we're all in this thing together. And the second is grit, a strength to put up with tough, tough stuff and grow from it. Third is resilience, the actual growth part of, of grit. And the fourth is hope. And so I think if we keep those four things in mind, not only the pandemic, but un unemployment and strife and poverty can be overcome with those four things. So community, grit, resiliency, and hope. And that is why, to our listeners, many of you suggested that we talk to Bob and, and have this conversation. Because as we all are navigating some of the unique things to us, we are more alike than not in our pursuits. In helping other people, serving our community with great passion, and making a difference. Bob, thanks for sharing your insights on these very key topics during this very rapidly changing time. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment, continue to give us your thoughts. Bob is on here today because someone suggested that we talk to Bob. The whole intent that we have around these is connection and collaboration. And we believe the more we can work together, the more we can pursue the things that find us more alike, the better chance that we have to make a difference. And exactly as Bob said, around community, resiliency, hope, and grit. Those are the things that will bind us together to make a difference. Thank you all, looking forward to our next conversation. Bob, thank you and appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom, really appreciate it. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.